As we turn to Nehemiah chapter 7 now, we're going to do something a little bit different today as a church. Uh, we're going we're gonna to kind of, uh, in a sense, interrupt my message a couple of times as we're, as we're focusing on Nehemiah 7, which is a different kind of chapter. Oh, I forgot to release the kids for Kids Choir. Uh, I think Debbie would have liked me to do that even before the announcements, but I'm glad they stayed for prayer. But, but yeah, if you kids choir, they, they're, they're, they're wanting to go now, and um, we look forward to hearing from them in a few weeks. So while they're going, I'll, I'll just warn you, we're doing something a little different in terms of my message. And uh, we're going to, in the midst, you see the table before us, and there's, there's, there are two pieces in Nehemiah 7. It's an unusual chapter, but there's two pieces of it. There's, there's an identity piece, and there's an activity there's an identity concerning God's people. And after we talk about that first part in the chapter, we're going to remind ourselves of our identity in Christ by celebrating the Lord's table together. And then we're going to come back into the Word again, and we're going we're to look at the, that particular privilege that God does give his own people, and thus us even today. We'll talk about that a little bit, and then we'll, we'll have a presentation from one of our elders and one of our deacons concerning a particular work that God has put in the hands of our generation. So again, a couple of different things as part of our time in the Word together this morning. But we trust that that will also be uh, practical as we consider God's truth. And in the book of Nehemiah, the first six chapters have been a, focused on the building of the wall. The rebuilding of the wall, the closing the breaches, the, the establishing the gates, and it's done, it's completed in chapter 6 in 52 days. Chapters 8 to 13, uh, Nehemiah's attention turns to the building of a people. In fact, the building of the wall was really about the building of God's people who would do his work in representing God to the nations. God has been using that work, first in building a temple, in this generation in building a wall, and now a work set before them to rebuild the city within Jerusalem so that Jerusalem will again be a city on a hill that shows God's glory to the nations. God has a, a unique purpose for this place, for this city. But if, if this is to be a city from which God shows himself to the nations, who then is going to repopulate it? That's the initial question. There's a who question and there's a what question. There's an identity and there's an activity in the chapter at the beginning versus the end. And there's a whole long list of names in between. So let me jump in first to the first section that I want to read together that is included in Nehemiah 7. He goes back to some historical sources, but he does that because there's a question that's set before us, who is to populate this rebuilt Jerusalem? So in Nehemiah chapter 7, we'll pick up, up, up in verse 3, which is basically where Pastor Ryan left off last week. So Nehemiah says, I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they're still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts, some in front of their homes, because the city is wide and large, and the people within it were few, and no houses have been rebuilt. 
So the city is still vulnerable. Don't open the gates at sunrise so the people can go out to the fields and that the merchants can come in with and, and, and offer the things they have for sale. That's normal. You open the city gates at sunrise and you close them again at sundown. But he says, wait a little longer in the morning for the sun to come up hotter before you open the gates and close them earlier. Because the city is still vulnerable, we don't have, it's kind of like when you don't have enough people staffing the nursery, right? Well, you don't have enough people staffing the gates, okay? So we need more people at the gates, we need more people at the nursery, okay? Both of those are true. Now, so we're going to have to decrease the amount of time the gates can be open. The city is still vulnerable. Well, part of the reason for that is we don't have enough people in the city, the, the houses had not yet been rebuilt. You still see a lot of blue tarps, okay? They, they have rebuilt the walls, but the, but the houses also were broken down, and certainly those parts that were flammable, like the, like the roofs of each, of each home. Those have been burnt. They haven't been repaired. So you've got blue tarps over all of those. Imagine it that way. But the people are living in, those who are living within the city as they built the wall, they're living in shanties, so to speak. The city needs to be rebuilt. The city needs to be repopulated. Uh, the, the people within it are few, and no houses have been rebuilt. Who is going to live there? Who should live there? And so, verse 5, Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. Who's who? Who belongs in which tribe of Israel? Who belongs within God's people who have been given the privilege of doing his work of representing him in the world? He, he goes back to this record. I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first. I found written in it, these are the people of the province who came out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel and Joshua and a different and earlier Nehemiah, and the list goes on. And now it goes on tracing uh, multiple families within Israel and also the towns to which they were attached to. So there's a family lineage that's referred to. There's also the inheritances in the land that is referred to where the people had lived prior to their captivity. And that's the place they can return to. In each case, whether it's tracing the family lineage back through, as Chronicles does a great job of, or whether it's going back to the allotted family inheritance in the land, the purpose is the same. Who are the genuine Israelites among us? Out of which, those are the ones out of which are eligible to repopulate Jerusalem, God's city, to represent him to the nations. That's what's at stake here. It's an interesting question. You say, well, gee, aren't they all Israelites? Well, remember, Sanballat and Tobiah, they originally wanted to have a piece of this work. Well, hey, let us come and help you. And Nehemiah says, no, this is our work because this is the work of God's redeemed people. Okay, well, there's going to come a time where Tobiah is going to sneak back in. He's going to have himself an apartment actually in the temple precincts, in the temple buildings itself. So there is this sneaking back. Who belongs here is the question. And so it's laid out because God has, God has given the, a unique privilege to his people. It's God's people who have the unique privilege to show his glory in the world in each generation. 
In this Old Testament era, that people is Israel. Those whom he redeemed out of Egypt. Those who are the descendants of Abraham. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Jacob is named Israel. And it's Jacob's 12 sons from who the the family clans are named. And it's not that these are the ones that God has chosen. Everybody else, sorry. Too bad for you. It's this people who have nothing special in themselves, that God is called and is redeemed in order to show his mercy to all the nations. The original promise to Abraham, that through, that through him, his descendant, all nations would be blessed. And his descendant, the Messiah, Jesus, is going to come through Isaac and Jacob, Israel. In fact, the tribe of Judah. The nations are going to see God working. That's the declaration of of Exodus chapter 34, that God redeems them out of Egypt. God's going to bring them into the land so that the world may see God's mercy upon them. God would see, the world would see God's great works through Israel. When David defeats Goliath, you think that's a great moment for David. It's a great moment for Israel. It's actually a great moment for the nations. The the, the way David explains it in 1 Samuel 17, verse 46, he says that this is so that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. God's intention hasn't been for Israel to know only. God's intention has been that through Israel, all the world would know. You see the same thing in Joshua 4 when they enter the land so that all the nations may know that, that, that God has blessed Israel. That he is God. In 1 Kings 8, verse 43, here's Solomon's prayer as he dedicates the temple. If only Solomon had stayed here. He says, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel. If only that had stayed true. If only Solomon's own heart had continued to fear the Lord. And Israel then had followed him, and their hearts had continued in fear of the Lord. They might have been much better at helping the nations around them to also. Instead, they chased after the nations around them and their so-called gods. Interesting, the Lord rebukes Jonah. And through Jonah, the Lord is rebuking Israel for neglecting their calling of making God and his mercy known to all the nations. The temple has always been an object lesson. The temple has been the place where you could go and see an innocent substitute who who dies in the place of the guilty for the forgiveness, the atonement of their sin. And it wasn't just for Israel. There was a court of the nations. And that's what Jesus rebukes them for. He says, my father's house was to be a house of prayer for all nations. You've turned it into a den of thieves. You've turned the, the, the actual court, which was the court of the nations, where Gentiles could get that close to the temple and see what was going on. And they crowded them out with various profiteering. They neglected that privilege, that God's people have a unique privilege to show his glory to the world in each generation. Nehemiah is restoring Jerusalem as God's city on a hill. It's from Jerusalem and the temple within it. It's from Jerusalem that the surrounding nations are going to again see. Now they're going to see a story of restoration. Now that's a story that resonates. That's a story that we can identify with because who among us has not had our own personal 
need for restoration with somebody else. And certainly before our God. To come to the point that God, I, I have sinned. I am unworthy. I am guilty before you. To, to pray like that man that Jesus describes, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And to go down justified. To leave that prayer accepted by God, forgiven by God, restored into relationship with God. Jerusalem is a, is a city, God's own city of his own people that has experienced his judgment. And yet... Now is the shining example for everybody all around of God's restoration. What they could not do for themselves, God has literally moved heaven and earth to restore Israel back to Jerusalem, for Jerusalem to be rebuilt, and for his glory again to be seen there. That's what Nehemiah is a part of. And this record... That, that God has provided of those who were restored in the initial return out of their descendants, then these are the Israelites here among the crowd of people. These are the ones who would have the privilege of helping to repopulate Jerusalem. As kind of silly of a question as that seem, who wants to live in Jerusalem? Raise your hand. Okay, go, move in. No. It's God's people whom he has chosen and whom he has redeemed who have the privilege of carrying on his work in the world to show his glory to others. Any of us, all humanity to some extent can show something of the image of God. But it's only those who have been redeemed by him who can show the fullness of his redemption, his forgiveness, his restoration to others. Sanballat and Tobiah and others like them can't do that. They need to see it for themselves as well so maybe they could receive it too. Then they could. That's the difference between Ruth and her sister Orpah. If you go back to the book of Ruth, Ruth says this, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And though she's a Moabite, she is embraced in, even given claim to the family inheritance in Bethlehem. And in fact, through her, the Messiah himself will come. Look who God will restore. And that's the demonstration that's happening here in Jerusalem. But it's for God's people. Who are God's people who will repopulate, revitalize God's city those whom he has chosen and redeemed to carry on the privilege of showing his glory to others. Like Israel, we also today have that privilege. The church as the body of Christ has the privilege of carrying on God's work, of showing his redemptive glory, his gracious restoration to others. First of all, who's qualified for that? Who qualifies to be part of those people whom God uses to show his redemption glory to others? Well, we also would go back to the books. We would go back to the record of what God has said to know who qualifies. In fact, in John chapter 1, verse 12, he, he describes it there. He says, well, Jesus came to his own people, but his own did not receive him. Those who you think would, didn't. But he says, as many as received him, to these he gave the right, the authority, to be called children of God. 
and such we are. Who are they? As many as believed on his name. Those who believe in Jesus, these are the ones who God says, you are my own. Because you've accepted that which I did for you in my son, Jesus. In 1 John chapter 5, he puts it this way. This is the record. This is the testimony. You want to know who are among God's redeemed through whom he does his work in the world today? This is the record. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. As important as I think church membership is to say, I am part of this local church family, far more important is membership within the body of Christ through faith in Jesus. This is the record. God has given us eternal life, and this life is not in a church. It's not in a membership. It's not in whatever one gives or does. This life is in his Son. The one who has the Son has life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. The one who fits into that genealogical record that Nehemiah has, has the right to be among the chosen, redeemed people of Israel who can be part of that new city, Jerusalem. Those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, those who have been forgiven in Jesus' name, those who have the Son and thus have eternal life with God through Him, they have the right as children of God to carry out God's work within the world today of showing his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, his redemption to others. That's the parallel between Nehemiah 7, identity in Israel, versus today, our identity in Jesus. Peter puts it this way. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's our purpose, to proclaim his glories, the one who called us into his light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Our identity is God's unique people who have the privilege to show his glory in the world. Our identity as God's unique people is not found in family records. It's not found in church membership roles. Our identity is in Christ. If you have been restored to God by trusting in Jesus as God's own Son who rescues us from the judgment that we deserve in our rebellion against him and our asserting our own way over God's way, but by trusting in Jesus as the one who, who took your place in judgment in order to give you life and restore you into relationship with God, just by believing, trusting God concerning Jesus, that he took my place, I'm forgiven in him. If that's your faith, if that's your confidence, then your identity is in Christ. Whatever we do, or whatever God does through us starts there. Nehemiah chapter 7 is about identity. Who are God's people who will do his work in the world? Because Nehemiah chapter 7 is about identity, I wanted us to celebrate that idea. Before we talk about anything else we're going to do, I wanted us to celebrate that identity right here at this table. So, so we're going we're gonna to prepare to approach this table with one more song. We're going to celebrate that identity we've been given in Jesus by forgiveness in his death in our place 
at this table. If you haven't, if you can get a chance to get those elements when you came in, feel free to do that now. They're at, they're at the back of the room, and uh, then we will celebrate the table together. I trust it with all my heart that his wounds, his death in my place, have paid my ransom, have covered my guilt, my shame, that have paid the price for my just forgiveness. If that's your confidence, then we invite you to join us at this table. It's the Lord's table. It celebrates, remembers he who died for us and rose again to give us life, not in ourselves, but in him. Our Lord Jesus, on that night that he was betrayed, he gave thanks, trusting his Father. Even in pouring out his own life for us, he gave thanks. He took the bread, he gave it to his disciples, he said, this is my body, given for you. Take then and eat in remembrance of him. And after that supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of your sin. Sin that all of it was future on that day that he died. Sins all added up into the day you believed, covered by his death for you. For the forgiveness of your sins, even of last week, or of this morning, that this cup is the new covenant in Jesus' blood, poured out for you for the forgiveness, the removal of your sin. Take and drink in remembrance of him. Father, thank you. Thank you for your love for us. Father, thank you for Jesus, your son, whom you sent. so that whoever believed in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Father, thank you that Jesus was indeed willing to yield his life, to give us life. Father, thank you for the reality of guilt removed, of sin forgiven, of relationship restored with you, despite what we have done. Father, thank you for that mercy, that undeserved grace given to you, given from you to us. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. And all who agree said, amen. You know, it is out of our identity in Christ. It's out of what, in fact, he has done for us. 
It's out of what he's done for us that we would do anything for him in participating in that which he gives his redeemed people to do in each generation. There was a unique word in that first exile return generation. There was a unique work to do. There was a unique work in Nehemiah's current generation. First the wall, now Jerusalem. There's a unique word for God's chosen and redeemed people even in our generation. He's joined us together as the body of Christ to make known his name, his character, show his glory, live in his forgiveness to the nations as well as to our neighbors. That God has a unique work then for each generation Nehemiah's and ours, God has a unique work then for our generation. You see, God first gave that returning generation a unique work. And Nehemiah includes the record of how those who have been restored, they also gave in order to build God's God's temple upon their return. He closes this chapter 7, including not only the genealogy that is going to help him to know who are part of these families of the returnees that could be part of the population of Jerusalem, but he also includes in this list, I think in a subtle way that points to what they're going to continue to do as well. He includes the giving of that previous generation. I think most of those originally who returned, the adults among them, certainly the the, uh, leaders among them, have long passed away by Nehemiah's day. And yet somebody dug into the church files, pulled out the records. In verse 66, it says that the whole assembly together that returned, if we skip through all of the names and places, was 42,360. Besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 245 singers, male and female. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, their camels 435, and their donkeys 6,720. Interesting. Livestock and singers lumped together there. I'm not sure what that means. Now to some of the heads of the father's houses, now now some of the heads of the father's houses gave to the work. The governor gave to the treasury a thousand derricks of gold, 50 basins, 30 priest garments, 500 minas of silver. And some of the heads of the father's houses gave into the treasury of the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 minas of silver. And what the rest of the people gave was 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,000 minas of silver and 67 priest's garments. So the priests and Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their own town. Jerusalem is not yet rebuilt. So there's this, there's this record of giving, and in this, there's some things that stand out for us be, uh, be, beyond the livestock and the singers. There's, it's evident that these people are not a wealthy people overall, and yet there are some wealthy people among them. There's a ratio of the people, 43,000 almost, compared to the servants, uh, just over 7,000. There's a, there's a one to six ratio there. Now, if you say, okay, well, one in six households could have had a servant. Well, chances are those that had servants had more than one, so you're looking at an even narrower ratio, maybe one in 12 or more that, that actually had servants. The others did not. 
Not only that, but you look at the livestock, and it's not sheep and cattle that we're, we're, we're considering here. It is donkeys and camels and mules and horses, the kind of, of livestock that could be used to carry burdens, to bring things back, supplies and possessions that you're going to use in your new home back in the land. One in six had a, had a beast of burden that they could carry possessions on. Or, again, the wealthier families probably had more than one, so fewer were the people that actually had a beast of burden to carry their possessions. Most of them returned from Babylon, had not made and acquired wealth in Babylon. Most of them in the exile looked for their inheritance back in the land that God had given them. And there was their future. And so they came with what they could carry on their backs or maybe what they could carry along in push carts, something like our wheelbarrows in that long journey from Babylon back to Judah and Jerusalem. So you see, there's quite an economic disparity among them also in the giving. The governor and the patriarchs or the heads of the family clans. We don't know exactly how many that would be. But those heads of families, they gave together along with the governor. And they gave about half of what was given, half of what was needed to restore the temple. But it's not just for the wealthy. The wealthy minority to, to fund this enterprise. That actually, it is the privilege of all of God's people. That the rest of the people who seem to us to be remarkably poor, they don't even have a donkey to carry their, their belongings on. And yet, the rest of those people together collectively gave as much as those who were wealthy. That's what ought to stand out to us. That, that participation in what God is doing Participation in God's unique calling for that generation is not just for those who have means, but participation is the privilege of all of God's people. Everybody, imagine, imagine the one who had very little. Imagine one like that widow who gives the widow's might, and Jesus said, she gave more than all these other clowns. Imagine one who gives that little but knows I had a part in what God gave me to give for what he's doing and making himself known in the world. That mattered. That first generation's shared participation is going to be continued in Nehemiah's current generation. That what was true in that first generation of, of returnees almost 100 years ago is going to be true in Nehemiah's day as well. That he, I think he pulls that into the story as an example for the people of his generation. And there it works something like an example for us as well. That generational example, in fact, is paralleled in our own church's history. This church has been here, I think, I want to say we're around 158 years. That's a long time. Now, somebody out there is doing the math to find out if I'm right or not. That's okay. You'll tell me afterwards. Please don't raise your hand. 158 years, let's say. Well, originally, they started the church in 1863 with, with a, a small log cabin, schoolhouse, and church combined at the corner of somebody's property, just up the road there. In 1894, 
A generation or two after that, they built the first church on this corner. It looked something like this. Well, it looked just like that, in fact. There it is. And some of those folks who built it. Now, a couple generations later, their grandchildren, the time came in the age and wear of the building to take that building down and to replace it with this one, just the front part, which you now know is the gym over in the Chapman building. And then, just after them, it was added on the Sunday school room. No, no, go back, go back. We're not here yet. Go back there to the to the Sunday school rooms that were added on to that building, and then a little more was added on for the pre-K as well. So the generations that came after continued, what do we now need for ministry in this current generation? And then that led from, that was the worship uh, auditorium there in this building, and that led to building this building in, in 1974. I don't know, is that, is that Trey Copper there? I'm not sure. But, but, but then, and of course that building ends up looking something like this. Looks a little different today, but, but all the way back in 1974 and then 1979, 1980, we built the education building over here just behind us. And so along the way in our history too, there has been a time to build for those who are, who are coming after us. And then there's a time to use that which God has graciously provided for ministry around us in the community and building up the body of Christ to be his messengers in the world of his mercy. But along the way, now and again, there's also the time for, for another generation to build that which will continue to be used to carry out ministry here for continuing generations. And it seems to us as elders in the church that that, that, is, that is this time. And that's why for the last couple of years, we as a church have been talking about that. There's been a few distractions in the last year or two. They'll have them there. Other things to grab our attention. In fact, in fact um, yank our attention in different directions. And, and yet... Uh, now again seems that time, and so it seems time if, we, if we're going to, in, our, in that annual meeting in a week, uh, talk about this and, and vote to seek the members also uh, sense that this is God's calling for this generation, then it's good to circle back around again and just remind ourselves of this vision that God has set before us. So I've asked the chair of our elder board, Daryl Libby, and one of our deacons, Nate Copper, to come and just spend about 10 minutes just, again, painting that picture before us. What are we talking about? What are we looking at building? And why does it seem that now is the time to do that? So thank you, gentlemen. Good morning. We are at a juncture in our church history, similar to Nehemiah and his predecessors, as Pastor Bob talked about a few moments ago. Others before us built the buildings that we worship in, learn, encourage, pray, and grow in. Today we are looking forward to future generations planning to equip those in Christ to go to others, to bring them into God's family, to build them up as followers of Jesus Christ. The existing education space is limited, and at the end of the 70-year, it's, it's 70-year-old life, which is now costing much more to maintain each and every year. We must build to grow and further equip current and future generations. As others have said previously and recently, it is our turn. Phase one, if you see, be 
on the slide, go ahead. Uh, has minimal, uh, the minimalist space to, to move the ministries out of Chapman and into some flexible space in the phase one building. It'll accommodate all the ministries. If we build phase one separately, we need to have a, a what's called a utility floor installed at the roof line to eventually accommodate the phase two, which is the upper story. Phase one would have a unique roof for a time, just between phase one and phase two. When phase two comes along, the phase one roof comes off, a weather resistant covering or barrier is installed to allow continued use of the phase one area. And phase two will have uh, ed adult education rooms, couple ele an elevator, flexible space rooms, and two sets of stairs. That moves everyone on a Sunday morning pretty much under one continuous roof, separate roofs, but they continue. Keeps out of uh, yesterday's rain. Phase three is the addition of a gymatorium. It will also have a kitchen situated right between it so it can serve into the gymatorium or into this auditorium. It's one of the big things about that is it's, it's a, going to be an outreach tool. It's very important uh, in God's eyes. The total project cost for the three phases as an estimated cost with inflation and phase timings of about $9.4 million. It becomes very significantly less if we can merge some of the phases. Leave it to us as a church to make sure we can eat food in the gym and the sanctuary. The design is good. God has placed us in this community, this growing community, at this time in history with this group of believers for his purposes, right? And this, this community is growing up around us here. We are, I would say, laser focused to teach as a church, to teach God's word and to live in grateful obedience to it so that we might live in this community as salt and light and to carry the gospel to our neighbors and beyond. To do that work, we need facilities and equipment to make that work possible. So the why behind this building project is as simple as we need to do this work in this generation and in the next generation because that's the work that's required to do and that's the work that God has given the local church. And we need facilities and equipment to continue to do at an increasing level what we're already doing. That's, that's uh, as you're riding in the car and you're saying, hey, why are we building? That's how I'm answering my kids. These future needs have been known for more than a decade, but God has led us to wait for his time, not ours. We had been faced with a potential need to build a replacement for Chapman when our future neighbor, Win Cove, across the street here, was, a, was aiming toward breaking ground. Clark County considered very strongly removing Chapman, make room for the intended roadway, but we ended up praising God as he intervened and said, again, not yet. We presented the vision two years ago at the November annual meeting. Then um, about three months later, we were all locked down. And again, not yet. So during COVID in 2020, 
God directed our leaders to build from within first. What happened was small groups, about just, few, just under 20 started in the summer of 2020. Organized discipleship groups started in the fall with the Roman series and there was about 50 plus people involved in that. There's revamped middle school and high school focus that's happening to address um, keeping people walking with Christ as they go later into life. And right now there's a class called BP Academy going, just like the one in the, the first service. Both classes are doing very well. They're pretty much filled. And next quarter, we're planning on adding another topic and having more classes than we currently have. Building, up, building people up is the work of the church. This also requires physical buildings. Leadership then asks themselves the question of the building project, is the good hand of the Lord on this work? So I wanna just talk about the project as itself and give a, give a sense for what it is for those of you who might not be familiar with it. Um, we took a big project and we chunked it up into three sections. Then we took each section and we made it into smaller bite-sized chunks. Okay, so up here, there's three phases to this building, and then there's three stages within each thing. So think about building. You have the planning and the permitting, then you have the exterior shell, then you have the interior finish, right? So each one of those can be done as God provides, and then we can stop the work until God provides for the next one, and then we can finish that work until God provides for the next one. Now, there's multiple benefits if we can combine phase one and phase two. We don't have to build one roof, not two. We don't have to take one off either, but that's up to God, whether he decides to do that or not. Um, I want to give you, I want you to feel the full weight of how big this project is, not to panic, but so that we make way for the good hand of our God if he chooses to put his thumb on the scale and make this work happen. Because there's really one factor that matters in all of this, is God behind this work or not, right? So this building after phase just one and two will be about three times bigger from a floor square footage perspective than this building. The sanctuary will not expand, but all of the different offices and teaching rooms will be about three times bigger than what it is today here. Um, from a, some of you, how many of you have taken the Dave Ramsey class that our church puts on annually? Okay, so there's a principle in there of save, be frugal, and live within your means, right? So I did some math just for fun. I said, all right, let's take our current annual budget and pretend we could save 25% of it, which I don't think we can because they manage every single penny. I was on the finance committee for a year, but let's just pretend we could, 25%. How many years would it be before we could fully fund all three phases of this project? 52, 52 years. I think Daryl and I will both be dead by then. <laughs> but, um, I, I don't, I don't, again, I don't say that to scare you off. I say that to put it in the context of there is one factor that matters in this thing, and it is not whether we can band together and do this ourselves. That's not it. What matters is, is God going to do this work, and how he is going to move, we don't know. But the one thing that matters in the background is, is God going to bless this work? So, to make sure we stay focused on God's face to discern his will. Now and throughout the project, the leadership set up three boundaries for ourselves that we're committing to operate within. 
One, the leadership alignment. Our elders are committed to walk according to God's word and in unity with each other. That means if one of them says, I have a caution, the others will listen to them. They'll walk as a, a united group to stay continually focused on God's face. That's one boundary. Two, we're going to commit to do this without debt so that we don't get ahead of God because we don't want to obligate God for a project he may not want us to do at that time. He may want us to do it a year later. So finances is one way to discern the will of the Lord. Has he provided or not? Well, if he has, great. If he hasn't, we wait. He has already provided for all of phase one, stage one, and into some of phase, uh, in, into uh, about half of phase one funds are already provided. Okay? Mm -hmm. And then the last one is membership confirmation. If God's moving here, he'll move amongst his people, from his leaders and to his members. So that's what really what we're asking for. Indeed, confirmation of the body. That is why Nate and I are up here having fun. Next week, we will, we will vote to have the church. Now, let me try that again. Next week, we're going to have the members vote to join with church leadership in regard to this project to affirm the next steps and plans, permits, and detail architectural work. Just as in the time of Nehemiah, the unified effort of all in the body is needed. We desire for everyone to know and worship God and make him known by equipping our body to effectively accomplish his mission for us to go to others around us, bring them into God's family, and build them up as followers of Jesus. Most of you have heard this, haven't you, that phrase. That's what we're about. We need new facilities to further equip the next generation to be the light in the world. The good, of, good hand of God is upon us. That means we will accomplish something that the community will notice and wonder, and God will receive the glory. What we need to do this week is what Nehemiah example for us. He prayed. We, the leaders of the church, are requesting for all the body to be in prayer, asking God to lead us in his direction, both for the church and for you individually. Also ask him, what is my part of the walls? I'm going to pray in just a minute. We've shared a bunch of information, and if this could help you in praying and remind you about where we're going, there's a little flyer, one sheet, it's in the back on your right-hand side in the um, rack that has uh, various material there. So use that if it's going to help you pray. And um, I'm asking you guys to pray, so it's my turn to pray right now. Heavenly Father, we, th we thank you for your church, the bride of Christ, Lord, precious in his eyes. Lord, we know his, his eyes are upon us and because he loves his bride. And Lord, we now need to, to listen to what you have for us. That very specifically, what do you, do you want the church to become, Lord? You've already told, that in, uh, told us that in your word. And now, what do we need to do to, to make that happen? Lord, soften the hearts of everyone here to hear your message, receive it, and in so doing, Lord, to be moved. That, and as you're moved by God, Lord, we know that will bless. So I ask for your blessings upon uh, the people.
guide them and lead them for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. God has a unique work for each generation of his people in making his name known in the world. Um, we have benefited from that which has been laid down by previous generations, and we also would seek to ask the Lord, what would you have us do for those generations that will come behind us? That um, just like in Nehemiah, that God uses the work that he gives us to do his working in us. This is how he, he shapes, molds, changes us as well. As Paul handed off to that next generation of the church in Corinth, he reminded them we are workers together with God. We are God's fellow workers building his temple. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building on it. Each generation has a work to do. Let each one take care how we build upon it. Let's pray. Father, we do ask for your grace. We ask for your leading. We pray that you would direct in, Lord, how we would build in what you are building. Father, we are workers together with you in whatever it is that you call us to do. Together as a church, individually, one to another. Father, use us then as your chosen, your redeemed in Christ. Use us, Father, to show the glories of your name, to live out your mercy and your forgiveness among the nations and, Lord, to our neighbors. Father, use us to, to show that, yes, there is a God who made us, who knows us, who cares for us, and in whom we can trust. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.